Thriving in divorce and beyond means not having to worry about the safety of your children when it comes to co-parenting. With alcohol abuse on the rise, many co-parents are turning to the system committed to providing proof, protection, and peace of mind. Soberlink's alcohol monitoring system is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide evidence that they are not drinking during parenting time. Soberlink's real-time alerts, facial recognition, and tamper detection ensure the integrity of each test so you can be confident your kids are with a sober parent. With Soberlink, judges rest assured that your child is safe, attorneys get court-admissible evidence of sobriety, and both parents have empowerment and peace of mind. Pull back the curtain on the mysteries of parenting time and trust the experts in remote alcohol monitoring technology to keep you informed and your kids safe and secure. Get an exclusive $50 off your device by emailing info at soberlink.com and mentioning Divorce and Beyond. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. We're seeing a lot more patterns of antisocial behavior, antisocial personality, probably antisocial personality disorder, showing up in high conflict divorce cases, especially in courts, because family law judges aren't prepared for the deceptions, manipulations, and they often succeed for quite a while. Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today we are again joined, very lucky to be joined with by Bill Eddy, um, licensed clinical social worker, family law attorney, mediator, and author of now, I think it's 16 books, Bill? Yeah, something 16 like books. That. Just something <laughs> like that. Prolific author on all things um, high conflict, personality disorder, dealing with high conflict people in a myriad of situations. And I'm thrilled, Bill, that you're back. Thank you so much. You were just with us last month because your book, which truly is upending the world of high conflict mediation, just came out, um, Mediating High Conflict Disputes. Uh, you were also on the show a few months back with your updated version of BIF uh, for co-parents, and there's also BIF for uh, the workplace. Um, and now you have just released an updated version with Randy Krager um, called Splitting. And then this is the second edition. It's Protecting Yourself While Divorcing Someone with Borderline or Narcissistic Personality Disorder. So we're going to talk about splitting today in the second edition. But first, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much, Susan. It's always great to be on with you. Well, and I, this is the, the book, right? This is the one I just posted something in my Instagram feed when the book came out um, about splitting. And I one particular comment that someone made really struck me um, because it's how what I hear most about this book. And it was, this is the book that saved me. This is the book that got me through my divorce with my high conflict ex. Um, and that's, you know, one thing I want people to realize this book first came out, I think it was 2011. Is that right? Exactly. 10 years ago, July, 2011. And it's, you know, this is the second edition and you, um, Randy Krager, your co-author is also the author on Stop Walking on Eggshells, which is pretty much the seminal book on dealing with um, people who have borderline personality disorder and explaining that disorder for those who are involved in any type of relationship um, with them. Um, so this is really has truly been the lifesaver for people. 
What made you decide 10 years in that there needed to be a second edition? Well, there's really three areas that I wanted to make sure to add from before. One was that we're seeing a lot more patterns of antisocial behavior, antisocial personality, probably antisocial personality disorder, showing up in high-conflict divorce cases, especially in courts, because family law judges aren't prepared for the deceptions, manipulations, and they often succeed for quite a while. And there's ways to address this, which we cover in the book. Um, But that was one big one, because it's not just borderline and narcissistic personalities. We're now seeing antisocial and people that overlap with all three of these personalities, which is really some of the hardest to understand. Uh, The second thing is that the way people present their case, just presenting it to a lawyer, to hire a lawyer, presenting it in court, presenting it to an evaluator, really matters. And because high-conflict people communicate emotionally, you have to also engage the emotions of the lawyer, the judge, the evaluator, mediator, etc., by being simple, by being repetitive, by having some emotional words and a lot of facts. And so there's a way of presenting that. So there's a whole chapter on presenting your case. And um, the, the third thing is really emphasizing, again, really to professionals, that there's got to be three theories of the case, that there's a lot of hidden presumptions. And frankly, in family law, there's a presumption that everything is equal. And if mom's acting badly, dad must be acting badly. And if dad's acting badly, mom must be acting badly. And that's just not accurate. In some cases, it's true. But in many cases today, especially if they end up in court, there really is one person acting badly. And that that gets clouded, doesn't get recognized. So helping understand that. So I'd say those three things, but reinforcing what I did before was talking even more about domestic violence, uh, alienating behaviors. Um, Those two in particular needed more attention even even now because we're seeing those problems getting worse, especially with COVID. Yeah, I was just going to say COVID really unfortunately led to a great increase in domestic violence incidents. Um, and a lot of, of issues for people. Um, one thing that strikes me for those who are listening, some of these terms may not be in their vernacular or they may think they know what they mean, but it's probably a great idea to give a very, you know, I, I, you, it, people go to, to school for years to learn how to diagnose these things. So we're not in any way indicating or saying that you should diagnose your spouse with any of these disorders, but could you explain you know, borderline personality disorder, um, narcissistic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder, sort of the differences and the hallmarks? Yeah. So with borderline personality disorder, the really key thing is these wide mood swings. So there can be sudden and intense anger and rage at the tiniest thing or something that may not even exist, but they think it does. And so these extreme emotions, but balanced by extreme positives. Uh, So, for example, when people talk about separating or divorcing someone with borderline personality disorder, they say, wow, I don't know what happened, but we just had the most incredible sex ever. And we've been separated for a year. And it's like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) You have to anticipate this coming back and forth and get reeled back in. Um, And so with borderline, there's that range. But the sudden intense anger, we see that, for example, domestic violence. Um, so, So that's kind of the biggest hallmarks. There's a fear of of abandonment, 
a fear of being left. And that's why when you separate is often the most dangerous time. Um, narcissistic personality, there's a lot people hear about, you know, self-centered and think they're superior. But what people don't realize is how much disdain can come from somebody with a narcissistic personality and how lacking in empathy they, they are. So they're totally fine destroying you and humiliating you in public if it gets them further along whatever they want to get. And then antisocial is really characterized by lying a lot. And people misunderstand that. They say, my, you know, my husband's narcissistic uh, and he lies a lot. Well, if he lies a lot, he probably has some antisocial traits, which adds some problems. One is that they're highly persuasive um, in the short term. And like family court's a short-term thing. Mediation is usually a short-term thing. And so they can really uh, pull the wool over the eyes of other people. And they're very comfortable also trying to destroy you, but they'll try to destroy you with totally fabricated events. And that's something that, that people just aren't prepared for. And, and narcissists and borderline, you know, they... Borderlines especially really care. Um, they really, there's something to work with there. And that's why I encourage professionals to manage their relationship rather than avoid the relationship. Um, so, and narcissists care what you think of them. So there's something you can work with there. Antisocials don't care. And they don't care about anybody. They lack a conscience and just think scorched earth. And if, you, if you're separating or divorcing someone like that, and they're about three quarters male and about a quarter female, and I've had cases with some female antisocials who are some of the worst, and, and the courts just totally bamboozled because she was so sweet and innocent. That was purely an act, Your Honor. <laughs> right, right. So those, those are kind of a nutshell but, but one thing more about antisocial is they're very aggressive. And so they're comfortable just steamrolling a case that they can get away with it. Right. And I think it's, you know, an important thing to say to everyone who's listening. Those are, are an overview of each of those personality disorders. As Bill said, you can see them intertwined, overlapping. But I know one of your big rules is not to tell the person who you think has one of these disorders that they have this disorder. And I don't think we can emphasize that enough. It will backfire on you. It will haunt you. Why do you tell people not to? Why can't we just say, hey, you, you're a narcissist. Fix it. Because they're, they're highly defensive. You know, I kind of group them as high-conflict personalities. And high-conflict personalities are blamers, highly defensive, stuck in the past, and they will, for months or years, um, try to uh, attack you for having called them one of those names. So don't use any of those names with them. Just adapt what you do and think, okay, well, I think maybe she's borderline, so I need to be calm and stable and not get really angry um, or be real rejecting you know, being balanced and moderate and calm, those types of things really help if you recognize that's what you're dealing with. If you say you're a borderline, and if you go into court and say she's a borderline, she should never be around the children, the judge, first of all, doesn't like you diagnosing your spouse. <laughs> but they really don't like those terms, partly because they don't understand them. And as I can explain later, is presenting patterns of behaviors much more effective than a diagnosis. And so, but if you call somebody one of these names, they will, they will punish you for it for months or years. Yeah. Having, I, I have a, a person who um, has um, symptoms of borderline personality disorder in my life. And I have to say, one of the things that always amazes me is that someone can remember the exact words that you said on a certain date 
10 years ago and will bring that up every time you talk to them for the rest of your life. So when you have a discussion with someone, it's not always just about what happened today or the, the issue you're discussing right now. It will sometimes turn into a litany of everything that happened. So if you say, hey, you're a narcissist or you're a borderline or you have antisocial personality disorder, be prepared to hear about it for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wise, wise advice. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and I think I, I do also want to emphasize something else you said there, because I have seen this to be true in courtrooms. Judges do not appreciate you diagnosing your spouse. They do not want to hear that from you. If a therapist who actually has had the opportunity to you know meet with and come up with a diagnosis of someone is testifying, that's one thing. That's but they different. do not want your personal diagnosis of your spouse's behaviors brought into the courtroom. Exactly. Yeah. And and if you want, I can explain the method what to what to say instead of a diagnosis. And that's also in chapter 14 on how to present your case. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that that's a great place to go. I have here, you have an entire section of the book called how to succeed in family court. And I think really that's where, you know, the magic of the book is for those who are, you know, one thing I want to acknowledge to those who are listening, it is probably one of the most difficult struggles in life to go through to be divorcing or separating from someone with a personality disorder. It is of a different, divorce is always hard. We know this. We've been doing, Bill's been doing this even much longer than I have. We, between us, we've got, I don't know, a good number of years. Mm -hmm. It is hard. But when it is involving someone with personality disorder, it's at a whole different level. Um, and although you may want to keep it out of court, very often it's going to end up in court. So I think some of the most helpful information is the very specific and very guided way that you walk people through how to handle a case in court. So yeah, let's dive into some of your top tips. Well, first of all is you really need to work with a lawyer. Um, and I'd say, you know, I'm in California, 80% of people represent themselves in divorces. And if you have an ordinary, you know, divorce, maybe you can do that. But if you're dealing with a borderline narcissist, antisocial, or high-conflict uh, spouse, or, or just co-parent, even if you're not married, but you're in court over custody issues, um, you really need a lawyer to work with. Um, and so I have a chapter on finding a lawyer. And people say, well, well can, you, can you give me the name of a lawyer who knows what you do, Bill? And I say, no, I can't. Because um, I've got like 40 years into this. <laughs> and but what I say is find a lawyer you can communicate well with someone you feel listens to you and and understands your situation, that that's the key. Then you can provide more information. But if you can uh, communicate well, um, that's that's really the key. And try interview at least three different people. Um, got a list of names from the County Bar Association or friends or something, but it's good to see. And different people click with different lawyers. So um, your, your best friend may have used a lawyer, but that person doesn't click for you. So it's a little bit of a burden of shopping um, on your shoulders. Once you're working on the case, I really want to reinforce what you said uh, Susan, about try to settle your case out of court. You know, mediation, collaborative divorce, negotiations, because it keeps the high conflict person calmer. And so they're less defensive out of court, and you want to give that a good shot. On the other hand, always be prepared for the possibility you may end up in court because they won't move, they won't budge, and don't waste a year negotiating if the other person's really not serious about it. Um, or they may run to court and make false allegations about you. So that's something to be always prepared for. That's why we say keep, keep, keep a journal of events that happen 
especially conflicts, so that if they become a legal issue someday, you can say, well, I made notes that night, and here's what I wrote down. So that kind of thing. So, so be prepared for both. Of course, get yourself good support, and that's what the first third of the book is about, building, you know, getting yourself ready for this. But if you do end up going to court, many cases, um, especially parenting disputes, uh, and the most high-conflict cases almost always have parenting disputes, it really helps, I think, to get um, an, an evaluation if the court's not getting it, you're not understanding your case. And high conflict people are very persuasive at the beginning. Um, I've had so many cases where the beginning really went badly because the high conflict person rushed to court, said things that weren't accurate, got restraining orders, no contact orders, whatever. And then it took six months or a year, or sometimes two years to unravel um, all the deceit, et cetera. So you, you need to keep yourself ready to go, like ready to have a declaration or testify or whatever. But getting an evaluation is the way you turn around some of those cases. So whether it's a custody evaluation, like with a social worker, or a psychological evaluation with a psychologist uh, depends on the case, but it, it helps to get someone who really understands personalities to then make some recommendations, make a report. Um, and then in front of the judge, as well as to an evaluator, you want to pick like your three biggest concerns, patterns of behavior, um, you know, undermining my parenting, um, deceiving professionals, um, uh, uncontrollable anger. Like, so let's say those were your three biggest concerns, then you want to present those and repeat those. <laughs> so right. the person goes, oh, this is the case. Because I had a case where there was a dispute about soccer and whose whose community they played soccer in, and that's what the judge remembered every year when we went back to court. Said, oh, this is the soccer, soccer case. No, Your Honor, this is a case of domestic violence, of power and control, of blah 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 blah, and it just looks like it's soccer, but it's so much bigger. So you have to pick like if there's only three things that the judge remembers. You want those three things to be out pretty quickly and repeated and repeated. So the judge, oh, this is the case of uncontrollable anger or the case of deceiving professionals or the case of undermining mother's parenting or undermining father's parenting. And then within that, you give the three or four worst examples and have that ready to get out early on. Like when people have an evaluation, I say I have a two-page summary of your 400 pages of documents so they can read in two pages what the three biggest concerns are, and they're going to remember that. So many people bury the biggest issues, and like on page 327 is the most important fact of the case, but by then, the person's distracted. Yeah. Anyway, so... That's some key stuff for going to court. Yeah, I, I mean, there's so many golden gems in there. Um, I, I was actually taking a couple of notes to make sure I emphasize a few things. And, you know, the first thing that I think of is ha having handled cases with high conflict personalities involved because so much goes on in these cases, because there's often just ongoing, repetitive, bad behavior, whatever you want to call it, on the part of one of the parties, things tend to be presented in a very chaotic and, um, you know, overwhelming fashion to our jurors, right, our jurists, to our judges. And I think it's so important what you said about summarizing it and, and picking out sort of the top elements that support your top three issues. That is so key so that your judge, it, because judges are people too, right. and, and you've referenced this, judges are not always fully equipped and in fact, most often are not equipped 
to deal with these cases. They don't even know what's coming at them. Um, I know you and Megan Hunter, your, your co-founder with the High Conflict Institute, do a lot of training of judicial staff and jurists, but still, you know, you guys, you know, you're trying to, to train the world. You're doing a fabulous job, but not, not enough people have heard you. Yeah, and I do want to mention, I'm not critical of judges as, as being judges. It's a lack of really understanding all this and that the training is so much more about procedure and most family law judges come in from another field, and that's often their first placement as a judge. And so we've had, you know, tax experts, utility lawyers, um, all these things, and they're getting hit with procedures and manipulation, and and they don't get it um, yeah. because there's so much to keep track of. That's why. The burden's really on you, the person going through the divorce, to keep it simple and repetitive so it gets through. Yeah, I think that is so key and it's hard, right? You're feeling overwhelmed because all this negativity and hostility and in some cases, as you've said, domestic violence is being brought your way. And yet this is the time where you are the person who knows the vast majority of the facts. So the other thing that you said that I really want people to hear is to, to start that journal. Uh, that is such a critical, critical factor in any case I've ever been involved in because there's so much information. You need a repository. But you make this point in the book, you need to keep that information safe. You need to, to keep that information and all of your information somewhere where the other party cannot access it. Hello, listeners. It's Susan, and I'm here to check in with you and say thank you to everyone who has joined us in the Divorce and Beyond members-only community. I hope you're enjoying all of the benefits of membership, things like the downloadable forms and checklists, the archive of episodes with all of the ads removed, the private and exclusive episodes that I record for you every month, the chance to ask me anything in the Ask Susan Anything forum, and so much more. If you aren't a member yet, it's only $10 a month, and you can sign up on the website at www.divorceandbeyondpod.com. So I hope to see you in the members-only community soon. Stay tuned for more from Susan and her guest, the world's leading high-conflict divorce expert, Bill Eddy. I asked at the beginning, what are your questions or goals for the consultation session? And they'll say, how can I make my case end? <laughs> and they may say it's been going for two or three or four years. And in a sense, the bad news is it's probably not going to end. But the good news is that it doesn't have to take over your life. If you are enjoying this episode, check out our special two-part episode, G-A-L-A-M-C-O-M-G, demystifying the roles of guardian ad litem and attorney for the minor children with leading attorney, Beth McCormick. You're appointed at the court's request and the common theme universally, I think, is that you are the eyes and ears of the court. So you are there out on the front lines, coming back to the judge and reporting in in a very in various ways and now we return to today's show yeah and one one thing that that's new in this book that i didn't really know and and the laws hadn't really come out about is keeping uh, electronic records that you can get in trouble for destroying uh computer files or whatever that you don't want to have discovered in a case, um, but where you keep them um, isn't controlled. This is what I understand from the expert I talked to, and I included this in the book, is what he said is where you keep your electronic records. So you could put on a thumb drive your journals, your uh, notes, your correspondence, all of this on a thumb drive. So it's not in your computer and you can carry the thumb drive around or 
put it in a safe deposit box, and you're fulfilling the requirement to maintain and maintain electronic records. Um, but that's also a way to make it safe for yourself. Right. So the thing that so many people forget is our spouses often know our passwords or they know what words we might use. They, we all work on, you know, a family computer or Wi-Fi system. And often, you know, I, how many times have we seen the case where somebody gets information because the household works on an iPad and that iPad is hooked up to somebody's Apple account? And so I've had cases where text messages from a paramour came in on the, the pad that people use to, to set the temperature in the house on the thermometer. So there's so much intermingling of our, uh, of our um, data these days that we forget that information, if you're keeping that journal online, you may be making it accessible to your spouse in many ways. Yeah. And sometimes people keep a handwritten journal, which doesn't... I was just going to say... Uh, there uh, we go. Pen and paper <laughs> still works, folks. Um, but that's I, I do think the journal is is such an important factor because, you know, and what maybe people don't understand is, one, there's so much information that comes in. You think you're going to remember the details a year from now, but between now and a year when you're testifying in court, many other things will have happened. But if you've written it down, as Bill said, contemporaneously, that's the legal phrase, at the time that something, yeah, then you're you're allowed to use what you wrote to refresh your memory um, in court. And that can be critically important. But it also helps you do what Bill was just talking about, finding the four or five things that support your top issues, you can go pull those, those, that information out of those notes you've made. Right, right. So it, it really helps in many ways. But if you do it the same day and you put a date on it, and it's the day of an event, that's considered contemporaneous, like Susan's saying. Yeah. And it's, it's just another important point because I think that's another theme that sort of comes out of the book is that this is a long haul. This isn't something that's going to be over very quickly in high conflict cases. That's been my experience. What, what, what should people expect if they're getting involved in this type of a situation? Well, I, I, that's part of why the beginning of the book is about how to support systems so you can pace yourself. Um, my experience with high conflict cases is we're looking at an average of two or three years. And so if you expect that, you're not going to be surprised. I do a lot of consultation and people say, I asked at the beginning, what are your questions, your goals for the consultation session? And they'll say, how can I make my case end? <laughs> And they may say it's been going for two or three or four years. And in a sense, the bad news is it's probably not going to end. But the good news is that it doesn't have to take over your life. And so it's really pacing yourself. So you you do what you need to do. You don't get emotionally engaged in the next crisis the person's creating, but you have, you know, whether you turn it over to your lawyer or you have a matter-of-fact response you always give, things like that. Uh, so it's really managing the case. And the reality is they do subside over time, but it's longer than with a normal case. And that's why if you're prepared for two or three or four years, it's a matter of fact, say, no, we're not going to change the schedule. No, I'm not going to change the schedule. The broken record technique. Um, <laughs> then the other person gets it. It's like, okay, so they, they don't push as much because it doesn't affect you as much. That, I mean, I think that that's knowing that you're in and need to pace yourself is important because part of the overwhelm is that you're constantly trying to dig yourself out of the hole of the misinformation. You reference lies. I mean, outright lies. Yeah. Um, I've always said to clients when, you know, a, a pleading will get filed with allegations in it and they're like, how can they, that's all false, everything in there. And I always, you know, use the phrase, well, paper doesn't refuse ink. Um, they can write anything that you want, but you will then be dealing with that misinformation 
And that takes you down that rabbit hole that you're constantly feeling like you're, you're coming out. And, and part of that is you really need to support yourself um, in that long haul with that support team, with those people who can help you uh, because this is not generally going to be a sprint. It is going to be a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other factors I wanted to be sure to ask you about. um, And first I will just say one of the things you mentioned earlier was that repetitive and short answer. Go, go listen to the Biff episode. Um, there's, there's no better, there's no better resource for how to deal with communication with your high conflict ex or spouse or co-parent, um, than, than that resource brief, informative, friendly, but firm. Um, but what about those instances? I actually just, um, received a direct message from someone saying they just got a guardian ad litem report that is full of misinformation and lies from their spouse. And what do they do about that? Um, and I think that's such a common situation that we've sort of been talking about. I mean, what do you tell a client when that is when they, you know, many times that's what will drive them to get the attorney. As you said, 80% of people don't have an attorney at first. Yeah. Well, I think they, since that report's going to go to court, they need to quickly have a document go to court which says what is and isn't true in it. And that's where at the beginning of your written response, you'd be reciting your three biggest concerns. And so you might say, this is an example of misleading professionals. Unfortunately, the guardian ad litem was misinformed and I'll be explaining below. Um, and about their aggressive behavior and about um, uh, undermining my parenting or whatever it is, since those are so common. Um, so at the beginning, again, you, you briefly give this overview that there's a lot of stuff in here that's not accurate. And then item by item explain what is accurate. I've had one of my worst um, Uh, false allegations of child sexual abuse cases. And I've had true cases and false cases, honestly believe false and knowingly false. But in this particular case, it was knowingly false and I was able to prove it. It was really a shocking case. And so we lined up false statement, true statement, false statement, true statement, so that you could easily see, and it was like 20, 25 examples of just blatantly false stuff. And so it was visually easy to see. Um, so that's that's the thing. I think visually it needs to be easy to see. That does need to be addressed item by item if it's going to court. Now, on the other hand, as we explained with the BIF responses, is if it's just a correspondence between you and your co-parent, and it's unlikely to end up anywhere else, is you can give a general statement saying, you know, this is mostly inaccurate. And um, if there's any questions, you can ask me. But, you know, I disagree uh, wholeheartedly with everything in this. Something like that. So you just a general global brief response. That's critical, that distinction you just made. I want everyone to hear this. If it's going to a judge... Go to the ex- that extreme of actually pointing out the factual information and correcting the misinformation. Yeah. But the mistake many people make is that when they are conversing with their co-parent or communicating with their spouse, they try to use facts to correct the spouse as if that's going to change their mind. Yeah. And what would you say about changing their mind? Forget about it. Forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of my favorite terms is forget about because there's so much that you need to forget about as well as stuff you do need to address. Knowing the difference is so important. And that's why you at least want to hire a lawyer, even if it's just for a consultation, to know what's important and what's not. Yeah. I mean, there are the four forget about it. For those who haven't listened yet to the mediating high conflict disputes, um, I, I would suggest if you are listening to this episode, go listen to that one because it is very helpful in the get the book because it will help you to, you know, do what Bill said earlier, try to mediate your case because it is, we talked about how long these cases take. 
it will take less time in almost all cases if you're able to mediate it than it will be moving through the courts. Right. Uh, the court system is just, it was overwhelmed before COVID. It is beyond overwhelmed now that we're starting to open back up. So um, you are better off in many ways if you can mediate. Um, but one of the other issues that we talked about here or that you talk about in the book um, is that issue, uh, um, and you've talked about it in other books too, but I've seen this so many times. Because someone who is, so the high conflict person in court often comes across as very calm right. and very, you, you referenced the lady um, who was antisocial, but had the, you know, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth persona in a courtroom. And the person who's dealing with high, the high conflict personality is often, they look slightly crazed in a courtroom. Um, and this actually comes back to haunt them. So there's also a, a need to stay calm, a need to, to start to take control um, and bring that into the courtroom. Um, and you have some strategies for that. Yeah, um, I don't remember which one specifically you're talking about, but I have thoughts that come to mind. Yeah. One thing I, I want to say is practicing beforehand with someone can help because the judge often is looking to see who's the reasonable person and they're going to listen to the reasonable person. And you know who the most reasonable appearing person is in family court? It's an antisocial personality person. And they are so good at looking really reasonable. You know, my wife is just a mess. Now you can understand why I had to restrain her from leaving the house because I thought she would just get into trouble. She's so emotional. I mean, look at her at the table right now there. She's, she's waving her arms and shaking her head. And, you know, and um, I'm just calm, cool, and collected. Yeah, and then... That night, he's going to be, you know, slashing her tires or something. So <laughs> it's yeah. sad to say, but if you look reasonable and can say, Your Honor, here's the facts. Your Honor, here's the facts. But there were some other things you were thinking of. So I don't know which one, but I felt you were pointing at them. Well, no, I was just thinking more of that practicing is a great idea. Just knowing, I always say awareness is probably one of your biggest gifts. Um, so just having that understanding uh, that, you know, in a courtroom, people tend to, you know, hear someone saying something. So you may have your antisocial person get up and talk about what a horrible parent you are. And our first reaction is usually to jump up. That's a lie. You always lie. This, that, and the other. And, and that flood of information will come out of you. And that really, unfortunately, just tends to make you look as they've just, as you just said, presented it very calmly, et cetera, yeah. that tends to reinforce what they're saying about you. So I just more wanted to emphasize that. I think that's important for people to understand. And one of the book things the book does for you is gives you that nice, um, that plan you can follow so that you do feel there's control, that you do oh. feel there's management to what is a crazy making situation. Yes. There's, there's one other thing to, to add here, and that is it helps to have kind of an encouraging statement for yourself that you can carry through. I always encourage that with going into mediation, but I think as well with court is that what's important is my connection with the judge, you know, having good eye contact and that what the other person's saying is not about me. What I'm saying is about me. What they're saying is to try to win their case or whatever. And here's the facts that you need to know. So that's why, you know, the chapter on presenting your case um, is real important, I think, because it's, first of all, it's new compared to the, the first edition. And it's so, it, I, I hate to say it, but over the last 10 years, this problem has not changed and it's probably grown. Um, because more and more reasonable people are setting their, settling their cases out of court. If you're in court, there's usually a problem. And often it's a problem the judges don't know exists. So you've got to be the one that, that presents what the problem is. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And I, that jumped out at me when I read the um, intro to the new book that you, I think you open it directly with the statement, sadly, 
not much has changed in court since we wrote the first version of this book 10 years ago. And, and I would say that that is true. I do think there's more awareness, at least on the part and willingness on the part of judges to understand what they're dealing with. But the other thing people may not know is judges don't stay on the bench in family court forever. They rotate. And so just when you get one educated on what they're dealing with, they may go off to, you know, to civil court or some other criminal court and you get a whole new judge who has a workers' compensation background or something like that. So um, there's a great, so what we should do is be gifting a copy of this book or getting this book in the hands of all of our jurists, our attorneys, and those going through a high conflict divorce or any, you know, really there's a lot of essential information in here for anyone um, going through anyone divorcing or dealing with. Yeah. Um, a high conflict divorce. Let me let me mention. I'm very excited. One of the reviewers for the book was one of the judges who I used to appear before in San Diego. She's retired now and doing mediation, but she I didn't ask her to. She read the book uh, right right around when she was finishing up uh, being a family law judge for well at least a dozen years, and that she felt that it was really valuable. Uh, really excited me. And that's where, you know, there's some judges that that will want to know this and I encourage them to get the book too. <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely. And I saw that. I do want to mention, I was very honored. You, you also, I was able to write a testimonial. It's right here on the first page, but I just want to say to everyone. Your number you know, one, Susan. It is. I was very excited. <laughs> Thank you. I, I opened it up and I was like, oh, this, this is a highlight of my career right here, appearing on page one of, of a book by Bill Eddy. But, you know, I, the one thing I said is, you know, splitting is quite simply the absolute must resource for those going through a high conflict divorce and the professionals who are supporting them. Um, so I encourage everyone, this is really, this is the book. You're going to read it and you will feel better because the path to understanding what you're dealing with and getting through this process is here. It's between these pages, in these pages, between these co- this cover. Um, so let's tell people right off the bat where they can get the book, Bill. Well, you can really get it anywhere. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can go to our website, highconflictinstitute.com. We have a bookstore you can link to, and we've got it there. Um, and, and other bookstores. Barnes & Noble have been supportive of my books. Um, so independent bookstores, I support bookstores. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very easy to get. It's an ebook. It's also an audio book. And so people who spend a lot of time driving uh, to and from work uh, like the audio books. And so it's, um, it's available that way, too. So it's just so easy to get uh, nowadays. And what's interesting is I... I uh, get feedback, like like reading the Amazon reviews. I read one, someone said, they must have known I needed it the next day because I got it, you know, overnighted to me. Um, and that's often people are desperate. And, uh, you know, I, I just think we try to make it simple. You can You can read it in two or three hours. But a lot of people highlight different parts because there's it's a reference book as well as an easy to read book. It truly is. And and I will say the earlier in your process you read it, the better, but it will be helpful to you even if you high conflict divorce is over and now you're just dealing with a high conflict ex um, because unfortunately litigation doesn't stop usually when the divorce is finalized. It only keeps going. Um, Often and and a lot of the biggest custody disputes are after the divorce is over. People are shocked, like, well, why is that? And I think it's because whatever connection had been there through the divorce process is now really gone. And so that's where you see more scorched earth stuff is people just totally out for themselves, don't care about the other person. And I've seen people who certainly shouldn't have primary custody 
fight for it after the divorce because something else went wrong in their life and they're going, well, I should just have total control of the kids, then I'll be happy. And that's not a good reason to change custody. <laughs> no, but unfortunately, paper does not refuse ink, as we said, and those that paperwork gets filed. Uh, so, Bill, I, I want to thank you again for coming back on um, for for you know, really for the work that you've done in helping people truly in such a desperate situation. I know, I mean, I get those emails too. I know you get them all the time. This is uh, just such a difficult place for people. And that's why your books um, and, and your podcast episodes and everything that you do, you, you write, um, you know, you have the blog in psychology today, please go to the High Conflict Institute website. It is a wealth of information and resources for you. But what you, you know, you, you really are the founder of thought in this <laughs> field um, and have helped so many people and will continue to do so. This book is going to be the staple for everyone in this new um, second edition. So I really appreciate the time you take to come and be with my listeners. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the chance to speak with you and with them. So I really wish everyone well. And I do wanna mention, I do a lot of consultation, not as a lawyer or therapist, but developing strategies around all of this. So, you know, a half hour or one hour consultation is certainly something that, people have said they get a lot of benefit out of. Well, I know you did that with one of my recent clients um, not too long ago, and um, he is still rhapsodizing about how helpful that was. So I do encourage people, I'm going to put a link directly. Um, do, do they book that through the High Conflict Institute? Yeah, so we have a tab for consultations, so sign up there. You know, so honestly, I would say read the book, write down your questions, be prepared, and you will get the most out of a half hour or an hour with Bill, which, you know, could be invaluable and really change the direction of your entire case to get some um, idea of how to strategize. I mean, there's really so much value in that. So again, Bill, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com, where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond.